Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Racing to Me, show 34, last show of 2020. Today will be slightly different than the other episodes have been. Today, I'm looking back at some of my racing highlights of 2020, which races are worth remembering and why, and what happened before, during, and after. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Now, the races and events won't be ranked, as I would spend days altering and perfecting the order, so no thanks for that. Uh, But I did decide upon a favorite. My favorite race of 2020 has to be the Preakness. It was the first race that came to mind when I started to write this show. This year's Preakness was quite something different. Of course, grade one, mile 316, three-year-olds, girl power. Girl power is the theme here. Swiss skydiver became the sixth filly after the great Rachel Alexandra, who ended an 85-year drought for fillies when she won the 2009 renewal. Of course, I want to talk about the week leading up to it. Kenny McPeak walking her around the shed row, Robbie Alvarado riding her all week. And uh, one of the interviews I did with Kenny in the week leading up to it was, you know, what are the confidence levels going into this and and how do you rate her chances and, and why do you put her against the boys? And I think what really stood by me and what I remembered is that Kenny mentions that They were there to hunt elephants, not mice, aka they were taking on the big boys and they were ready for them. And the week leading up to that, of course, we saw all these Preakness runners in the mornings doing their thing, getting put through their paces. It was a wonderful experience really getting to know these horses character-wise and physically as well. And I loved seeing her on track. But what I do remember quite well is um, a couple of days before the Preakness, They were doing these little local news segments on the inside of the track. And I'd been asked to do a few of them just for different stations. I've never done them before, but I thought, sure, why not? When I realized they were doing these on the inside, you know, the the infield of Pimlico Racecourse, first thing I thought was, okay, how am I going to get there? And unfortunately, they were really early, so I hadn't really allocated time to go and find myself a golf cart to drive all the way around go through the tunnel so in the end I was very lucky that one of the outriders took me over across the track but that's also how I realized what had happened just before I got there because I walked up to the main track and there was all this commotion that was also the reason the outrider was standing by the by the um, winner's circle where I was walking up to the track because one of the tv crews had actually crossed the track without anyone supervising them. They weren't aware of the fact that there were horses training. And Swiss Skydiver and Robbie were actually, you know, doing a good bit of, a bit of faster work. I wouldn't have said she would have done like an official hit out, but she was getting put through her paces. And apparently Swiss had seen them already because obviously they had cameras and they had a light on them. And Robbie ended up telling me later on that she clearly had spotted them. And they were about to go and collide with them. And he managed to pull her to the side. So this, of course, was quite an incident, quite a thing. And I just vividly remember that, thankfully, 
everyone was okay. And obviously, clearly, that is something that will never happen again. And I remember speaking to the TV crews who were clearly upset and, you know, flabbergasted. Like, oh, there are horses training? Yes, there there are horses training. Uh, thank you so much, local news crew. <laughs> so that was quite the lead up. And of course, this was my first ever coverage of the Preakness. This was my first uh, season with the Maryland Jockey Club. So it was just a wonderful experience the entire week leading up to it. And well, let's let's go into the race itself because it was an absolutely scintillating race between her and of course the Kentucky Derby winner, authentic, eventual Breeders' Cup Classic winner. And Dave Rodman, his call was the perfect description of what happened throughout the race. He received the America's Best Racing Award for favorite call. The race itself was voted uh, favorite race of the year, same platform, America's Best Racing. And let's go and listen to it right now. Six furlongs a minute, 11 and one fifth of a second with a quarter to go at Pimlico and the Philly shows away. Swiss Skydiver, Authentic, the Derby winner alongside. They're set for a battle in Baltimore. And on the inside, Swiss Skydiver. On the outside, Authentic. Johnny B going left-handed. Swiss Skydiver, Swiss Skydiver, a furlong left to go. Swiss Skydiver looking to make Preakness history. Another Philly bounding toward the 16th pole. And here's Authentic on the outside, answering the call head and head. And Nose and nose, Swiss Skydiver and Robbie Alvarado. They've done it from Authentic. Another seven lengths back, and it was Hazos's team. I remember watching the race from the jockey's porch, which is where one of our sets was, and where the jockeys come out of the jocks room normally. Now, this year was slightly different because of the pandemic. And I was watching it together with Ashley Mayu, which is one of our presenters and a, a wonderful friend of mine. And I just remember the absolute high of watching the race unfold, the adrenaline. I mean, none of us thought that we'd have a matchup like that on our hands. If we did, we thought it would have been maybe between Authentic and Art Collector. Of course, Art Collector was the Kentucky Derby talking horse before he had to withdraw in the week leading up to it due to a minor injury. Well... Robbie Alvarado denied Johnny Velasquez his first ever Preakness score. I mean, he's still looking for a very elusive Preakness. And of course, Robbie had already tasted victory in Baltimore before with Curlin in 2007. Now, as for the race itself, Swiss Skydiver ended up securing the rail behind Thousand Words, having crossed over in front of Art Collector to do so. And Authentic was on the lead together with his stablemate, and he was sort of one off the rail. Now, a lot of attention has already been given to the move Robbie made on her on the backside, slicing in between Thousand Words, who seemed to be going backwards quite quickly, and Authentic. She saved ground, she took over the lead coming around the turn, and the stretch battle that follows, as you just heard, is one for the ages. It was just a pleasure to be all behold. We we all love saying how if this happened or that happened, the result might have been different. What if they had decided to ride Authentic more aggressively, like in his victorious classic romp? Or if Swiss hadn't been able to get through the two Bafford runners, secure the rail and effectively half block uh, the left-handed swing of Johnny which had had been coined as the one thing that particularly gets authentic going 
Now, because in that, if you look at the side notes, the entire stretch run of the classic, Johnny was employing a stick left-handed. And of course here, he had Swiss Skydiver on his inside, kind of blocking that a little bit as he had left the rail open. Now, to say a little more side note about the Preakness itself for anyone, any naysayers, I don't think there are any. It was the second fastest Preakness ever run. Uh, it was a time of 153.28, which is second behind Secretariat's record time of 153 in 1973. So those were the you know fastest and second fastest time for the Preakness held over Mao in 316. And after the Preakness, Ashley and I still had one race left to cover that day, namely the, the Grade 1 UAE President's Cup stakes, Mount 16 on the dirt for purebred Arabians, four-year-olds and upwards. When you've just witnessed a history-making race, it can be very challenging to regain focus and talk about a completely different horse breed. Uh, Ashley and I ended up recapping what we've just witnessed and... Of course, actually being the incredible analyst she is, handing out solid form info whilst I was giving a bit of a, a paddock analysis as I'd seen all the runners walk in, we ended up having the winner in our selections, thankfully, which we were so proud of, as Arabians can be notoriously unpredictable. So that was the story of the Preakness, one of my favorite races, a wonderful week leading up to it, and certainly a memory that I will cherish for a very long time to come. And let's move on to the second race on my list. Now, as of now, it's kind of random. It's more races that I wanted to highlight because I, I feel like they deserve that and the stories behind them deserve the spotlight. So let's start with Essential Quality winning the Grade 1 Breeders' Cup Juvenile over Mound 16 on the dirt for two-year-old Colts and Geldings for owner breeder Godolphin. Now, trainer Brad Cox had a banner Breeders' Cup weekend, securing four victories, of which will also highlight Monomoy's girls' distaff win in just a little bit. Now, Essential Quality, a colt by Tappet out of Delightful Quality, who herself is a half-sister to two times two-year-old grade one winner Folklore, who took out the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies in 2005 and won the grade one Breeders' Fraturity and went into the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies unbeaten. For those who don't know, Godolphin had a homebred last year, Maxfield, also going in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile at Santa Anita Park, but he was forced to miss that race with a minor foot injury sustained quite close to that event. And Maxfield, of course, returned in May this year with a solid grade three mad win victory before another little break and the recent return at Fairgrounds where he kept his unbeaten record intact. Now, he's a colt that I can't wait to see develop further as I got the pleasure of seeing him grow as a yearling at one of the Godolphin farms here in the United States during my time on the Godolphin Flying Start course. He was that gangly-looking good walker out of America called Velvety, who's by, and he is by Street Sense. Now, Brennan Walsh has been managing him well and carefully, and I just feel like there's so much more to come, and I hope that we'll get the chance to see that in 2021. But getting back to essential quality, he's a very professional and mature-looking sort who I saw schooling in the days leading up to the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. 
a very relaxed and fluid walker. That the race itself, they went very fast up front, 45 and 1 for the half, compared to 48 and 4 for the half mile in the Breeders' Futurity at the same track over the same distance, both grade ones. So, in that race, which is a race essential quality came out of um, before going into the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. Essential Quality was on the pace before taking over the lead. But this time, he stayed far off it and came with a four-wide move, hitting the line very strongly, posting a career-best 95 buyer for his effort, which I dare say half attributing here to the masterful ride given by Louis Size because he allowed the colt to settle instead of making him sit closer to a clearly quite devastating pace. Now, moving on, as of Wednesday, whatever day you're listening to this podcast at present, it was announced that Belmont Stakes and Travis winner Tis the Law will be retired and not race on as a four-year-old. Was it great shame, really? Because I was looking forward to his exploits. I feel like, you know, the older um, cult division, or the male division is just not looking as strong anymore because clearly... All the good horses are going off the stud, which is very understandable. This is a discussion I've had uh, before my podcast. I discussed it with Ashley Mayu as well. And it's understandable that you have to make racing thoroughbreds commercially viable. But it's also a great shame because I wish that we'd be able to see these horses race on. So he shall not be continuing his, his career. He will continue in the Coomer Breeding Shed at Ashford run by one of my good friends in Blaze Benjamin. So he's in extraordinary and very experienced hands there. But my favorite experience related to Tis the Law is his grade one Belmont Stakes this year, a mile and an eight. Uh, shortest distance that the Belmont Stakes has been run since 1894. Normally, nowadays, being run at a mile and a half, making it the true test of a champion. Now, this victory was not only a sheer tour de force, it resembled a crowning moment for Jockey Manny Franco, as well as firmly cementing Tis the Law as the prodigy he was deemed to be ever after his impressive grade one champagne stakes victory as a two-year-old on his second career start. Now, Tis got a beautiful toe, into the race by Tapper to win and when Manny asked him to accelerate he did so nearly instantly and I think that's one part of the equation allowing him to perform the way he did as well in the Traverse and and this was highlighted so well by his fast work rider Heather Smullen who I got the chance to speak to quite frequently I was very lucky to be the one kind of uh, trailing tis the law the entire time around uh, the Belmont and Saratoga track so it's been an absolute pleasure listening to those people closest to him and in the Belmont stakes getting back to Manny Franco he shouted whilst crossing the wire and throughout the eerily empty Belmont grandstand one could have heard him it would also for me a last minute press conference hosting session as I was working for the New York Racing Association, the organization that brought me to the United States in 2019, and I'd been a part of their production team that year as well as this year at the Belmont Mean in Saratoga, 
and they're all aware of my aspirations to continue in the broadcasting game. I ended up being called in as a last minute host for the media session. And of course, I uh, was a little bit nervous and I got a fair few dry Barclay tag answers, but also just a splendid memory of a historic moment with the Triple Crown order being altered. And of course, now tis the law not running on any further. And we all know that he didn't end up being the Triple Crown prospect we all hoped him to be. But still, then moving on to his travers in Saratoga and the fact that we were continuing still to race without fans, but that there were fans lined up all around the fence at the backside of Saratoga. And it was just quite the moment. So I will rem- fondly remember trailing Tiz around the track, seeing him work out in the morning and, and speaking to all his connections. So I do wish him all the best in the breeding shed. Well, I can't mention Tiz the Law as well as Swiss Skydiver without talking about the most likely horse of the year in Authentic and his career best loose lead in the Grade 1 Breeders' Cup Classic, a mile and a quarter on the dirt at Keeneland, and he broke the record there. One minute, 59 and 60, on what did seem to be a lightning-fast dirt track that weekend, especially prepared, of course, for the Breeders' Cup. The first time I laid eyes on him was in the aforementioned Preakness and the week leading up to it. And he's quite a morning workhorse, always dragging his exercise rider around and sometimes even bucking and just, you know, trying to run off a little. That's just how strong he is. Uh, he's more of a, a leaner two-turn type, never carrying any excess weight or heavy muscle. He's just all endurance and high cruising speed with that leggy frame of his now, the way Authentic was ridden this time around in the Classic, aggressively sent to the lead from Gate 9 by Hall of Famer Johnny Velasquez, really made all the difference. Throughout the year and his races, trainer Bob Bafford has certainly gotten to know him much better, as well as how to keep a lid on him and allow him to use his natural speed without overdoing it. Now, Improbable came moving up really gamely around the bend and it looked like he was ready to perform, but Authentic just found a whole new gear. Quite the way to close off the year and his career. And I remember watching it on the rail with the sun going down as the final race of the 2020 Breeders' Cup was coming to a close. It was this sense of someone is now going to come and get the three-year-old and we were all waiting for it but nobody did and authentic cleaned up they hit the wire first and it was just a wonderful performance absolute madness afterwards in a winner circle because you know he was of course owned part owned by my racehorse so a phenomenal sort of story for the syndication of thoroughbred racehorses in the United States and as well as anywhere else in the world. We'll stick with the Breeders' Cup theme for the time being. Champion Monomoy Girls Grade 1 Breeders' Cup Distaff, a mile and eight for fillies and mares, three-year-olds and up. Well, there was a crowning glory on an already illustrious career. I dare say a few 
might have tried to beat her in that spot with a couple of long shots or maybe not so long shots in Preakness Heron Swiss Skydiver. Because Monomoy Go had a wide draw, gate 10. Of course, she is a five-year-old and she had a fair few layoffs in between. But it didn't matter that she ended up sitting three wide throughout. She had to dig for it. But boy, her class truly prevailed, placing her on a pedestal above the others. Of course, the evening after, she was sold for 9.5 million to Spendthrift. And it was announced by Spendthrift general manager Ned Toffey that she will return once again in 2021, which is splendid news. I, I couldn't be more excited to see her again. And I also feel for the horse racing public, for the fans, that these mares racing on year in and year out are exactly what attracts you to horse racing, getting to know these fillies. I'm talking about Enable in Europe, Wings in Australia, Monomoy Girl doing something similar here. And I really, really hope that she builds on everything she's already done. And I have to underline what JK said in one of the player shows with PTF, where I do also believe that they should and probably will be targeting grade ones against the boys with her when they bring her back. I mean, champion three-year-old filly, very highly touted as becoming this year's Eclipse Award winner for champion older mare. I mean, who else would you give the award to? Midnight Bezu, maybe? I think the jury <laughs> would be quite in unison on this decision. Getting back to her challenging the boys, why not? She's already shown to be in a class apart among the females. Why not dare hunt elephants? As Kenny McPeak said so eloquently in that interview before his filly lined up in the Preakness and beat them all. Why not go for races like the Grade 1 Woodward or the Whitney? Both a mile and eight at Saratoga. You can tell where my mind is, where I'd like to be at next year. Um, those races have both been won by females before, uh, most notably Rachel Alexandra in 2009 when she raced the rafters in the Woodward. Or what about Personal Ensign in the Whitney in 1988? It would firmly cement Monomoy Girl as one of the greatest females of all time. Now, if that isn't something worth gunning for, I don't know what is. Moving on, a notable mention has to be given to the old boy, Whitmore. Also aptly dubbed the equine Conor McGregor for his ferocious lashing out at the starters when they try to touch his quarters for him to load. If you've never seen it, do go and have a look at some of the replays because whew, he uh, he can double their barrel them quite nice. You don't want to be hit by those. Now, the seven-year-old bessing the younger challenges in the 2020 Breeders' Cup sprint over six furlongs for three-year-old and upwards, that was, of course, one of the feel-good stories of the year. Whitmore having tried three times previously to win the sprint and now finally, finally getting his picture taken at the Super Bowl event of the year. I particularly loved his trainer, Ron McKay, saying how he felt like he had him ready 
Because some people were wondering if Whitmore was still as capable and still as fast as when he was younger. Now, I quote Moquette here. A lot of people thought he was declining. But I looked back on his second place finish in the Vanderbilt behind Volatile earlier this summer at Saratoga and think that race may have been every bit as good as any he had ever run. Considering the pace scenario and how fast the winner came home in the final quarter mile, like 23 flat. I told anybody who would listen to me after the Phoenix that I had the utmost confidence we could win the sprint. I knew how tight I had him. I knew what I was bringing into this race, which I think is absolutely wonderful. But this also brings me to the morning light favorite in that race, Met Miles star of coma being scratched when spiking a fever the Tuesday night before the Breeders' Cup weekend. And he was undefeated in 2020 out of his three starts. His Metropolitan handicap victory, you know, one mile, Belmont dirt, showed his true talents. He headed the field from the get-go. He clicked off 45 and four from the ha- for the half mile, not withholding any punches. And when turning from home, there was a whole slew of challengers trying to get to him, including co-favorite McKinsey that day. Now he rebroke and won by a comfortable length and a half. Now a lot of talk has gone into his action, which I think deserves a mention. He's actually quite a correct physical. I got the pleasure of seeing him in the flesh at the George Weaver barn on the Belmont backside when he just arrived and was having a pick of grass. He's a straight walker. He does carry a lot of that very strong sort of bulkier sprint muscle. However, when you see him in full flight, he significantly paddles outwards, making you kind of uh, a little bit squeezy looking at him as if he doesn't He doesn't look like how we normally see efficient champions move. However, he doesn't catch himself and he clearly gets over the ground with minimal effort or interference. And according to his jockey, Javier Castellano, he moves like a Cadillac, I quote. I think this is funny how it kind of highlights this subjective aspect of the horse racing industry where we're always looking for these perfect athletes, the best confirmation, ticking all the boxes. I mean, how else are you going to sell a a yearling to a prospective owner if they aren't perfect, right? And then you have those thoroughbreds that move slightly differently or look a way that makes you think they might be injury prone or disfavored by the way they use their body. And then they go out and prove you completely wrong. And I've sat on a fair few juveniles that don't look like the mold, but some of them give you the most incredible feeling with with power and length and speed underneath you. No comparison whatsoever to what you saw as a physical. And I think that is very, very significant here. Um, I can give you a, a cool little example, actually. This is an example that's quite frequently used on the Flying Star course as well, but in general, in Europe, the majority of people know the horse that I'm about to talk about, the Mighty Attraction. She owned and bred 
by the Duke of Roxburgh, and she was trained by the legendary Mark Johnson. She looked fine, cantering from the side. Not so much when you saw her from the front. So if anyone wants to have a look, do go back to, I think it was the 2004 British Guineas, the 2004 Irish Guineas. She was quite crooked in her front legs. And she moved with a helicopter-like rotating action. I mean, she was the first to win the British and Irish Thousand Guineas, which is like the, the female male three-year-old prime turf race that those are the races you want to win does it really matter how they achieve victory as long as they don't hurt themselves i don't think so although of course this is more frequently an exception to the rule than being common and hence when we see it it does look very different for us getting back again to the breeders cup adaria in the Philly Mare Turf Grade 1, a mound 316 on the turf at Keeneland. Of course, last year, Iridessa snatched a race for the Euros with young trainer Joseph O'Brien taking all the glory at Santa Anita Park. Now, Odaria drew in stall 11 and came in here on the back of her third placing in the Group 1 Prix de l'Opera Longines at Longchamp over a mile and a quarter on heavy ground, where Subsequent Breeders' Cup turf winner Tanara also took home the sport. So talking about a key form race here. However, Daria came in as well two starts back, having won the Group One Prix Jean Romanet over a mile and a quarter on soft ground at Deauville in the start before, where she was prominent from the get-go. She sat third, patiently waiting behind the leaders before kicking clear with authority. But she'd also shown even before that, three starts back, that coming into this event here, tight Keeneland turf course, that she can corner well going left-handed and has a turn of foot capable of making up multiple lengths within stride, which is what you need here, as she did three starts back in the all-weather race at Newcastle that she won. Now, of course, the race itself was quite the spectacle from the start with uh, the grade one Woodbine Mao win their Starship Jubilee and seating jockey Florent Giroux coming out of the gates. Now, Daria ends up on the rail, even though I haven't drawn so far towards the outside, so it was a phenomenal feed there, about three lengths away from the pace set by fellow European runner Cayenne Pepper and the grey motion-trained Mean Mary sort of right up there. I really liked her in that spot as well. Mean Mary, she didn't end up doing as well as I hoped for her to do. Uh, the turf course is quite tight for some of the euros as comparatively we wouldn't have sharp turns like that and you definitely have to be able to accelerate going around a turn whereas quite frequently horses are able to accelerate going straight here now Adaria was under a hard drive the entire last quarter or or so uh, by jockey Pierre Charles Boudot who ended up having a stellar Breeders' Cup with two wins. Um, He angled her outwards and kept urging her to give more. Now, rushing fall was charging hard and clearly had the jump on Adaria, but Adaria outkicked her in the end. And it's just a wonderful tale with handler James Fanshawe having never brought a runner over for the Breeders' Cup before, despite having had a few Group 1 horses in his care. His first experience and... 
I remember interviewing him before the race that day, whereby I actually uh, sold the interview to him saying, I really like this filly in this spot, which I did. And he retorted saying, well, I hope you're a good judge. Well, lucky for both of us, she duly delivered. And he elaborated beforehand upon how well she had traveled over, how she had her ears pricked going around the turf course, but also how, you know, going into that race, he was just going to leave it up to the jockey to find the best spot for her. Well, knowing the tendency for American turf horses to still show a fair bit of speed early uh, in comparison to the, the somewhat more, you know, drop out of the gate, sit, relax, and then kick clear kind of European style. Now, of course, I'm overgeneralizing it. That's not always the case, but that tends to be more frequently employed as a tactic. So from my point of view, I was kind of concurring with him that she might have been able to sit closer before, but that wasn't necessarily going to be the case here at Keeneland. Now, it was a perfectly timed ride by Budo, who also picked up the ride on the 148 flat dollar winner Order of Australia in the British Cup Mal. A quick note for the pedigree geeks on that horse trained by Aidan O'Brien. Order of Australia is a half-sibling by dual Derby winner Australia to last year's Breeders' Cup filly mare Victor's Iridessa. So that was a little bit more of the story behind Adaria and her connections and the wonderful joy that surrounded a trainer like James Fanshawe coming in here with a filly like her, you know, really taking that leap of faith and her duly, duly delivering late. Last but not least, I'm going to highlight a filly that most of you might have already seen or heard of, but if not, you have to check her out. Travel Column. Her breakthrough score was in the grade two golden rod stakes, a mile and 16 for two-year-old fillies at Churchill Downs. That was on my birthday, November 28th, and to make it even better, she's by one of my favorite racehorses in Frosted. The jury is, of course, still out about his stud performances or his stud performance in general, I should say. But he was such an impressive Met Mile winner and he was by far the stallion. I thought physically walked the best, beautiful balance to him and also has a wonderful temperament when it comes to, you know, having seen a fair few of the Godolphin sires at John O'Bell Farm. Now, trained by Brad Cox, Travel Column was acquired by Oxaec equine for quite the hefty price tag at Phasic Tipton's New York Saratoga select yearling sale for 850,000 US dollars in 2019. Now on the day in the Golden Rod she wasn't away as quickly as some of the other fillies and hence she ended up being on the wrong end of a tight squeeze situation that we do see quite frequently in two-year-old events. She ended up being the back marker and she'd come off from off the pace before, but never having been this far back. She was over five lengths back. Going into this race, Travel Column had finished third behind Simply Ravishing and Crazy Beautiful in the grade one Alcibiades. And Jockey Florent Giroux waited with her around the turn and kind of angled her inwards towards the rail, hoping for a seam that never came. And so he had to aggressively move her outwards again 
to get away from the wall of fillies in front of her. And she accelerated very, very strongly despite the trouble. I think there are just much bigger things in store for this filly, especially as she managed to secure this win despite a very stop-start and inefficient way of having had to run in that race. I hope you all enjoyed this little synopsis of a few, a few, may I add, worthy 2020 racing highlights. I am certain there are plenty more deserving of my attention. But these were just a few that stuck by me from personal experience, as well as the stories behind them and the weight of some of these thoroughbreds' performance. As this comes out on New Year's Eve, may I wish you all a healthy, safe and wonderful 2021. May it be a vast improve from the adversity we've all had to deal with throughout this last year and no doubt will continue to affect a majority share of the year to come. But at least one thing we do have is this wonderful distraction of these mighty animals laying it down for us on the racetrack. Long may it continue, and long may we protect these thoroughbreds, people, and our sport from fading into the background. I feel very fortunate to have been able to, on a personal and professional level, achieve some highlights, making 2020 a very significant year for me. So let's hope there is even more in store for all of us in 2021. See you in the new year. And thank you so much for all the continued support. It has been my absolute pleasure. 